Yes, so science and transhumanism, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, I think I think I want to make sure that the aims of this talk is somewhat clear, right? It's to provide some working definitions of transhumanism because there's so many, it's it's a very diverse, uh, it's it's a movement that has many different moving parts. And as you can see from the previous talks as well, and also provides some definitions of science, bad science and pseudoscience, because each one of this is also, uh, is also ambiguous. These are ambiguous gigantic terms. Um, so I want to be able to, to provide some definitions. And the purpose is really so that, you know, to enable us to assess the science in transhumanism from multiple perspectives, depending on what kind of view of transhumanism you have, depending on what kind of view of science and pseudoscience um, that you have. So that's kind of the overall goal um, of this talk. Okay? So it'll be going over some of these terms or transhumanism first, good science, as a standard in order to know what bad science and pseudoscience are, it's good to first look into what good science means. So that's how we're gonna, going to progress um, through this um, short talk. <clears throat> so transhumanism, definition and mission. I think Ron Goldbrenner has done a very good job in terms of going back to the sources, the official documents in the history. That Max Moore, for example, <clears throat> says that transhumanism is a class of philosophies of life. So it's a it's a philosophy, right? With a certain goal to seek the continuation and acceleration of the evolution of intelligent life beyond its currently human form and human limitations. This beyond indicates the trans aspect of transhumanism, but by means of what? By means of science and technology. So this techno science becomes the driving engine for this philosophy of transhumanism. Guided by life promoting and uh, life promoting principles and values. That's a statement from Max Moore. Uh, another quote would be from the Transhumanist Declaration. It says here, humanity will be radically changed by technology in the future. We foresee the feasibility of redesigning the human condition, including such parameters as the inevitability of aging limitations on human on artificial, artificial intellects, unchosen psychology, suffering, and our confinement to the planet Earth. So transhumanism is not just about cybernetic mortality or reaching the singularity, but there's also the idea of escaping the Earth, right? becoming a human in Mars and continuing to evolve there as Martians. So that is still also within this big umbrella of transhumanism. So now I want to put transhumanism, I think in terms of various definitions in the religion and science spectrum. Okay. So for example, so from the top here is kind of from the faith to science, like from faith to science as a gradient. So transhumanism can be understood as a secular faith. This is by uh, Hava Tiroshan Wilson. Uh, it's a very, very known Jewish scholar in the field. And she says that transhumanism, it's, it's a secular faith. You have faith in this progress, right? And then Michael Burdett also talks about the myth of progress in the previous talks in this series. I think there's a very good explanation trying to explain what transhumanism is. It's, it's a religion of technology. Um, transhumanism can be also seen as a science religion hybrid 
now here you have the religion, but also a little bit of science. And this was proposed, for example, by Huxley himself. Ron Cole Turner put it as has said, transhumanism is an intellectual and cultural movement, right? Where religion and science are both integrated um, all together in this cultural movement. Braden, who gave a talk on the virtue ethics, uh, on the virtue of human enhancement, says, well, the reason why transhumanism is trans is because you're enhancing the human to the point that it might that we might become post-human or no longer human. And so this is understanding transhumanism as a desire for human enhancement. If we go beyond the human, for example, from Schofstall, this is an evolutionary perspective, right? So we have a evolution that's continuously progressive. And therefore this is a, a transhumanism is pulling that, extrapolating that beyond this homo sapiens. So this is a post-Darwinian scientific perspective. Okay? And the one that I think is most practical in terms of most quote unquote scientific in terms of the definition would be transhumanism as an NBIC convergence in science. And this is by Dupuy. So this is the gradient. I will begin from the science first, then I kind of go up backward, okay? So what is the NBIC convergence? Um, Jean-Pierre Dupuy at Stanford says that in transhumanism, we witness a NBIC convergence, which is a convergence of nanotechnology, biomedicine, information technology, and cognitive science. This is how he describes this. This is what, this is what enables transhumanism to have its visions of the future. So what are, what are we talking about? Nanotechnology involves nanobots, cyborgs, Biomedicine involves genetic engineering, most recent one, CRISPR, genetic editing, uh, immortality, biological immortality, being able to, li to live forever, or radical life extension is another word for it. Um, and cryonics. Cryonics is another example where you can freeze humans so that we can live in the future, so that we can, if you have a disease, you freeze yourself now, so that in the future, once the cure is found, then you'll be woken up right, or re-resurrected so that he can be um, cured. The resurrection is probably not the best term for that. Information technology, uh, singularity, big data, the fact that our consciousness, that we will all attain um, singularity, everything will be united. And cognitive science, the possibility for mind uploading or cyber immortality. Maybe our bodies will decay, but our mind will continue to live, um, to live on. So, the, so as you can see, there are different streams of transhumanism depending on which science they're writing on. But usually it's a hybrid combination of, of, of these aspects. Okay. So now in trying to assess the science in transhumanism, I think it's important to talk about what is the good first, what is good science first? And I think even that is difficult to define. And historically, there has there has been many definitions of science. So there there's a blurring lines uh, between the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'll I'll show you some examples of, you know, kind of a transhumanist vision of science, and then the science of today. So for example, uh, this is a video of nanobots. Okay. Um, nanobots here are depicted as little robots that have intelligence that work in the blood vessels and that can fix broken 
um, red blood cells or kill cancers, maybe lymphomas and so forth and so on, as well as uh, in military functions and in movies. So what is the feasibility of creating such sentient nanobots? So what is the current status of nanotechnology? I can share from my own work, for example, um, this is the use, oh, it's replaying, I'm trying to escape this slide. Okay, there you go. Uh, this is, for example, using a nanoparticle uh, to, enable, to enable drug delivery. This is called a nanodrug. So this is the current status of nanotechnology, one example, okay? So we have um, a nanoparticle that we can attach hooks to that can report to us uh, so the, these nanoparticles are able to quote-unquote communicate by releasing acoustic and fluorescent signals, uh, but not voluntarily, right? So, so they're constantly releasing acoustic fluorescent signals. They can travel to specific sites due to the hooks, due, due to these hooks um, surrounding their particles. So, the, so we, can, we can design hooks that allow them to bind only to triple negative breast cancers, which is very aggressive. And then once it's attached, then the drug can, can function. And we have signaling methods that we can detect to identify whether it has reached the destination and then whether it has unloaded the drug. Um, this was published in Nature Biotechnology in 2021, two years ago now. Um, so basically, the, the drug by itself doesn't really work. The nanoparticle itself doesn't really work in extending the lifespan of the mice bearing these triple negative breast cancers. But if you combine, if you put the drug into the nanoparticle carrier, then you can actually have a prolonged lifespan. Okay, so this is this is kind of the current status. It's very different than the video that was shown. Right? It's not like little robots floating around in the blood vessels or going into tumors, um, shooting drugs. No, it doesn't work like that. It, these these are non sentient um, nanoparticles that are being released um, into the body in vivo. Okay. Uh, another example, though. Uh, maybe it's a lot closer to the science. So cryonics, cryonics, we can think of, you know, Steve Austin uh, or um, Steve Rogers from Captain America, a more recent example, where in both cases, they look unharmed and look like they, they just fall asleep while being frozen and then woken up in a, in a more distant future. Right? So this is popular. Um, now, this is the science behind it. One example, uh, this is... Uh, Paul Siegel's uh, family. This is Judy, uh, Judy Siegel's wife, and the dog Miles. So the experiment that he did um, at Berkeley was that um, he was able to replace Miles' blood, the dog's blood, with a special um, substitute compound, substitute blood that allows him to cool the dog, um, disconnect the heart lung machine. Right. So Miles um, had no pulse not breathing and circulation has ceased for about 15 minutes. And then the dog could be warmed back up. His original blood is returned and Miles was perfectly fine. Okay, uh, So Miles lived, I think for an additional two or three years or something. And Judy told me he got hit by a dog, by, by a car. So so poor Miles and he survived this cryonics when he got hit by a car. Um, so, so this is, this is the science uh, uh, behind it. Okay. Um, and this was done, done at Berkeley. So Paul's um, advisor was my thesis advisor when, when I was at Berkeley. And he himself is um, in cryopreservation. 
Okay. So, so in that sense, now, now that gap is more difficult to discern, right? Where is there science and where there's um, more speculative transhumanist science? You can see sometimes the gap is really obviously different. Sometimes the gap is a lot closer. So in, in this book, Religious Transhumanism and its Critics, the one that Father Marius mentioned, I try to spit out you know, science, pseudoscience versus bad science. And that's what we'll talk about now. It's, 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 these are blurry lines, but I think there are guides to help us. Okay. So the good first, what is science in terms of standard? I think if we go back to St. Thomas, there's this idea, I know this is oversimplistic science as correspondence with reality. Uh, science is scientific method, which is the modern science from, from Bacon. Science is an empirical process. Science is verification. Falsify, falsifiability, and finally as paradigms. Okay, this is just a walk through philosophy of science in, in a few slides, and just to show that there's a diverse range of um, ideas of what science is. So science is correspondence with reality, veritas uh, educatio, intellectus. It's truth actually here, not science, right? It's the correspondence of thing and the intellect. Uh, this may be one of the oldest or simplest, though I don't know if St. Thomas's idea is actually that simple, we can talk about it later, uh, about truth and knowledge, where it's stated that by science, we must have a corresponding reality. Whatever is pointed out by science, that truth must correspond to the reality. So this can be traced back to um, Aristotle, but I think it got developed a lot more by St. Thomas. Right? For Aristotle to know something is just to know the causes behind the thing. Um, but for St. Thomas, I think it's not as straightforward as that. Okay. So, for example, if I state that a piece is white, then in the world we can find the corresponding reality where there is a white piece. So the question then becomes, what is that process of correspondence like? And we can go to Francis Bacon about this. Well, that process of correspondence may be mitigated by the scientific method. He was at uh, Cambridge, Trinity College. And this maybe we can understand it somewhat as an inductive method. And we start from observation and then it's tested through experimentations and then we derive at some conclusions, some theories. Uh, the irony here, Newton, who was also at Trinity, they're both at Trinity and Cambridge. Newton discovered the theory of gravity um, and he did not have an answer of what gravity is, no definition. And the hypothesis also did not explicitly rely on observations. I thought that was a little bit of a little bit of funny. Um, now, given the understanding that science is the scientific method, is the implementation of the scientific method limitless? This is one of the questions that that came up. In response to this, David Hume says, no, there is a limit. Right? Hume from Edinburgh criticized Bacon and said that science is limited to empiricism alone, to empirical things alone and cannot go beyond that. Uh, causality even is just an induction that cannot be proven. We cannot prove anything. The induction process says that a goose is white, but that's because we have never seen a goose of another color. And we cannot find all geese before making that statement. Okay. So if induction is not the best process to be used um, in science, the way you think about it, um, then what should it be? One proposal is understanding scientist verification. So now we're entering the era of logical positivism from the Vienna Circle, right? Uh, influenced by Wittgenstein. The idea is that um, there are only two sources of knowledge, logic and empiricism. 
now it is verified by logic through the analytic a priori, and now it is verified by empiricism through synthetic a posteriori, which means that there's no synthetic a priori and there's no science outside of logic and empiricism. That's, that's the, the logic uh, positivist um, spirit. So if we have this idea of science's verification logically and empirically, what is the end of this verification process? Is it endless? Uh, to that, Karl Popper has a very famous uh, definition of, of science or understanding of science. I think he's the one that popularizes the idea of demarcation of science. What, what is the line between science and non-science? Right? Because at that time, there was the rise of um, Freud's psychoanalysis and Heisenberg's quantum physics. So he, he really tries to understand this. And he basically states that science is tested through a process of falsification. In other words, scientific discoveries may be uh, proven to be wrong. Right? So the statement, the swans are white, is true as long as no black swans have been discovered yet. Now, does it mean that if you find uh, a data that disproves your original statement, does it mean that the theory is then com uh, abandoned completely? In reality, that's not what we see, right? So this is now starting to get into uh, Thomas Kuhn, who says that, well, science is paradigms, okay? Uh, this is science is paradigms that concerns uh, a community of scientists. Every paradigm has assumptions, and these assumptions are not separate from the culture and research infrastructure of the scientists. So a single data cannot disprove a paradigm, a theory. It takes a lot more than that. There's more to this, uh, to that theory than just a, a proposition. So every scientific advancement happens when there's a paradigm shift, when the community reaches a new consensus. The paradigm shift begins with initial data that cannot be explained by the old paradigm until a new consensus paradigm is eventually formed that can explain that initial data that was disruptive. Okay. So therefore, my question is then, is good science based on the quality of that paradigm or the community behind the paradigm? This is starting to question the agent. Um, today, when, when I do scientific research, uh, it's very driven by funding. It's not like in the old days where they have a lot of money, um, they own estates and they can fund their own expeditions and so forth and so on. You can't do that anymore. Right? Usually you get your funding from the government or from private sector. If you're in academia, usually it's from the government. For government funding, grant writing becomes the most, I would say, visible way to see how you distill the scientific method onto practice. So when you write the proposal to get the funding, you have to describe your science project to be scientifically solid. You have to talk about the background of your problem the significance of this problem, how your solution is innovative or novel, what impact it makes. Does it impact a huge part of the population or a very small um, part of the population? What preliminary data you have, uh, what goals you have, these aims, what goals you, you, you want to do for, with the money and how you design your experiments to test these aims to attain these goals. That means you have to anticipate the expected results if your hypothesis was correct. You also have to anticipate different results 
that's when you have to develop alternative strategies should your results do not fit with your hypotheses and future directions. This is the way it is designed. It's, it's implementing the scientific method in a very rigorous and very detailed manner. And there are also accompanying documents that specify the ethical aspects of the research proposal um, and numerous support letters from collaborators. So here you can see some combination of the content, but also the communal nature of the scientific enterprise. You have to show that you can do this. The equipments are all there. You have collaborators in different fields that are working together. And then the proposals are reviewed by a group of scientists in the field as well. So this is a very community um, uh, activity, community heavy activity. Now, having gone over the history of philosophy of science, the understanding of science, now let's apply it to transhumanism, right? Because that's kind of our initial question. So the first one, science is correspondence with reality. Um, doesn't transhumanism try to alter reality? It's a little bit difficult to say, you know, um, oh yeah, it corresponds with reality, but you're trying to change it. In other words, the, the point of transhumanism to a certain degree is to enhance us to the point that we are no longer human. But the reality that we have now is that we are just humans. So, so it's very difficult to have that idea of correspondence. What are we comparing it to? Okay. Uh, science is a scientific method. Well, how well does the transhumanist, uh, how well do transhumanist projects incorporate scientific method? I think this depends. Uh, science is empirical process. To what extent is transhumanism empirical? Is it, a lot of it is a faith-based or myth of progress in that sense it's not empirical. It doesn't, it doesn't bear, it doesn't have any empirical implications. Um, and or the object of the transhumanist project sometimes is debatable whether it is empirical, such as mind uploading. So I think there's a underlying uh, philosophical terminology that also needs to be figured out uh, before before we can determine this. Science as verification. How, verif how, how verifiable is transhumanist project if the goal is in the future? Because it just says, well, let's wait until it happens because it has never happened before. And how falsifiable is it? Because if, for example, we wanna say, well, the goal is to make humans immortal and to point out that death is a disease. If you fail to cure death, then the answer is, well, just not yet. We haven't figured it out yet. And there's this optimism. But this optimism renders transhumanist projects, some of them, as not falsifiable because it's always not yet. We'll get to it, just not now. Um, and then science as paradigms. How mainstream are these transhumanist communities and paradigms? Um, I think at the moment, the answer, they're not very uh, mainstream, though it doesn't mean that there are some very strong uh, projects under transhumanist science. So now instead of looking at whether transhumanism is scientific, let's see, because it doesn't always fit, right? Let's see if maybe transhumanism sometimes falls into bad science. So we go into the next um, section now. Bad science, erroneous science, fraudulent science. Okay, so bad science I think can mean two things. It can be it can mean erroneous or it can mean fraudulent. So examples of 
making an errors in scientific method is when you use an incorrect experimental machine to assess something. For example, if I want to know if a certain cancer expresses, um, has some specific receptors in its membrane, and I use the scientific technique called Western blot, like grind up the cells and measure uh, all proteins, uh, that's the wrong way of analyzing things, isn't it? Because now I've ground up the cells, I don't know whether that protein that I'm measuring is, was inside or outside of the cell before I ground them up. Right? So this is using a bad, using the wrong technique. You should have used flow cytometry or something. Right? So this is one error. Another error is lack of positive and negative controls. People just forget, you look for something, just test the variable uh, that you're testing, but you don't test the positive and negative controls. You don't provide that in your design. Lack of randomization. Um, this also happens with the sexes, including males, but not females uh, in, in mouse studies, for example. Uh, and then have conflicting results that are not explainable by the hypothesis. And this is important in the sense that, you know, you get a lot of data and you forget about um, other people's data that don't fit with your hypothesis. So you just present whatever is based on your findings. Uh, and then confirmation bias, which is similar. This is an unconscious tendency to interpret new evidence to support your own existing beliefs and theories. And we, we, we all have confirmation bias to a certain degree, right? That's why we have to be very careful in this. Now, bad science sometimes can become fraudulent science. And this is where you literally make up data, data fabrication, where you steal other people's data. Um, or not disclosing conflicts of interest. Um, and the last one is similar to confirmation bias, they go hand in hand, it's cherry picking data. But this is very, this, this might be conscientious, right? Like you choose only the data that will support your hypothesis, the bad data you just throw under the rug. Uh, so this is cherry picking data. Okay, so this is bad science. Um, so how does this apply to transhumanism? Does, does transhumanism fall into bad science? Maybe, maybe some, some examples, right? Um, one that I would point out is this tendency to collapse short-term and long-term goals. You know, when you're, for example, when you're proposing a grant, a scientific project, you talk about these are the specific aims. These are attainable within five years. I'm creating a timeline. But when you're talking about, you know, the goal is to obtain immortality. When's that going to happen? Right? Some have said, "Oh, well, it'll it'll happen in in 20 years," and then 15 years down the line, you postpone the deadline for attaining immortality or attaining singularity. Right? So this lack of concrete short-term goals uh, is is bad science. Confirmation bias, uh, for example, you know, no human has attained immortality. Right, and most species are not uh, are not immortal. Yet the very few data on such species, jellyfish or something, they're used to support the idea that hey, hey we can be immortal too. Uh, I think this is some form of you're so hopeful that you look for the the, the unicorns. Um, lack of positive or negative controls, uh, because by definition, transhumanist research goals are beyond the controls. So for example, in a regular setting, if, if, if you just hand me um, 
uh, a piece of tissue or a, or a flask of cells, in order to know if this is cancer or not, I need to compare this, the behavior of this unknown sample compared to the positive control, which is a known cancer, and compared to a negative control, which is a known non-cancer, right? That's how you compare. So is this unknown cell more like a positive control or negative control? Okay. Now, the problem is with, with some of these projects, um, you want to have an immortal cell that is non-cancerous and also already differentiated. Well, what's the positive control? Such a thing doesn't really exist. It's, it's debatable, of course, but it's not very clear what the positive control is because you're trying to go beyond the control, right? You're trying to find something that is immortal but not cancerous. So this is these are tricky, um, uh, tr tricky subjects. Um, immortal but non-cancerous, but also um, differentiated. And then the last one uh, is ex extrapolation of data. I think this is almost inevitable in many transhumanist projects. For example, if you know that um, you have some data that a single gene modification can cause 30% of lifespan extension, um, then you extrapolate and say, well, that means additional gene modifications could create immortality. And I think there is, this is optimism and, and also extrapolation of data. It, it doesn't mean that at all. You might get stuck. Um, I think this happened a while back. You have a knockout of an IGF-1 equivalent gene and the lifespan of worm is six times longer than the maximum lifespan. And you try it as you try it with more like more complex species such as in mice, the lifespan extent is a lot less. And in um, primates, uh, maybe only 10% or something. I forgot the nature paper. So, so it depends by species. Right? So you can't extrapolate data from C. elegans to uh, humans that quickly. All right. So if transhumanism falls into bad science sometimes, I mean, I'm not dissing transhumanism, even scientists fall into bad science, you know, we make mistakes. Uh, but does it mean there's also fraudulent science in transhumanism? Now, the reason I'm raising the, this question is not to answer it, but it's brought up to point out that most definitions of science that I went over before, we were talking about the content of science. Right, whether it is it, it whether the content of science scientific claims correspond to nature, whether it is verifiable, whether it is falsifiable, right? But once you talk about is it fraudulent, there's a human intention here, right? That that, that the science then is just not based on its content, but also we need to look at the science as an activity. We need to pay more attention to, to Thomas Kuhn's um, understanding of science thing. And I think that idea is also um, in St. Thomas. Um, I mean, who, who am I to talk about St. Thomas at the Angelicum, but um, I'll give it a shot, right? Uh, so, so science can be seen as obtaining the truth, which where the quote comes from about Veritas, um, as a correspondence with reality. But St. Thomas is obviously a lot more complicated, a lot more complicated than that. That um, science can be seen from the perspective of knowledge acquisition which involves some comprehension um, of that end, is the end good or not, and then the movement of the will. Um, science, technically speaking, also, a sciencia, 
it is also defined as a habit of the mind or as an intellectual virtue. Um, question 57 or something in, in Prima Secundae. And so it's, it's a habit, it's not a body of knowledge. And I think this is what I really like about this definition. It's an activity. Okay? And what is also nice with the way St. Thomas puts this category of scientia within the habit of the mind, then you start talk, thinking about not only the intellectual virtues, but also the moral virtues and the theological virtues. Right? How do we order these different habits? Um, so um, by, by understanding science as intellectual virtue, it's possible then to follow St. Thomas in connecting science with faith, one of the theological virtues, which we often talk about faith and science, but also with, with moral virtues in terms of the impact. So in other words, the habit of doing science as intellectual virtue for the benefit of others, rather than moral virtues, is enlightened by the working out of one's faith as a theological virtue in relation to God. So I think it's a lot more integrated. It's not just analyzing the content of science as a body of knowledge. Yes, he has that too. But when you look at the overall framework, it's a lot more complex than that. And, and that's what we're encountering when we, we're looking at these um, uh, phenomena of, of the practice of science today. All right, so now we go into the blurry areas, which is pseudoscience. Pseudoscience and faith, pseudoscience and bad science, pseudoscience and BS. Um, so pseudoscience, it seems like pseudoscience, if I was to describe this in simple arithmetic, it's like half science, half something else. Right? So for example, one quote, pseudoscience consists of beliefs that appear to be based on facts and evidence, but they're not grounded on the scientific method. It's a recent paper. Uh, pseudoscience sometimes is a derogatory term to just say it's bad science. Uh, some have proposed this back in the 80s, I believe, but this is now being uh, flushed out. Pseudoscience is neither good nor bad. It's simply empty talk or BS using scientific terms. This is according to uh, Moberger's paper in theory. And this is what I want to explore slightly further because I think the gray areaness um, of pseudoscience in terms of BS is interesting to, to, to discuss. So if, if pseudoscience is understood as science plus bad faith, not in the Sartrean movie for technical term, but just kind of in Burdett's understanding of myth of progress. Right? So that means transhumanists are just credulous. Yeah. If pseudoscience is, is understood as good science plus some bad science, uh, then, th then that means they're just not great, great scientists. Okay. If pseudoscience is understood as science plus BS, uh, maybe they're a bit both credulous and not great in science. So let's explore this um, category more. I think the other two are very are, are more black and white. Um, this category, I think, more gray, and that's what we have to deal with in pseudoscience, the pseudo part of it. So defining BS as an academic discourse. Um, so BS, quote from, from Frankfurt, 19, Frankfurt, 1988, Frankfurt, uh, he says that in essence, it's an indifference to how things really are. It's an interesting definition of BS. Um, a more modified definition, it's a self-willed ineptitude that neither presupposes nor rules out indifference towards the truth, thus lacking in epistemic conscientiousness. Yeah. So an astrologer might or might not 
scare in the validity of a specific astrological reading on a specific day, uh, in the end, the astrologer will still believe in that in, in astrology. Okay, so the verification aspect of it is not that relevant. Yeah. And this is astrology is usually the classic example of a pseudoscience. Uh, BS and the demarcation of pseudoscience versus science also share similar problems. That's why it's also interesting to view pseudoscience in, in terms of BS. So there's an issue of time constraint. For example, uh, flat earth was a science in prehistoric times, but it's BS today. It doesn't work. Right? Um, and there's also this issue of scientific pretension. If you promote anti-vaccination while wearing a lab coat, then you know you, you kind of fall into pseudoscience. That's you know, the, the scientific pretension is there. So his working definition is that pseudoscience can be defined as BS with scientific pretension. So let's explore the implications of this um, uh, definition. So um, pseudoscience defined as unconscientious uh, epistemic claims or BS with scientific pretensions, focusing on the pretensions part, as opposed to observed data, you know, often renders them unempirical. And thus, pseudoscience is not science or anti-science. So for example, the claim that X causes Y, and then you get the result of you don't observe Y, then you say, well, then the Y is latent or it hasn't happened yet. This is unfalsifiable. This is non-science. I think, I think this attack was launched to some of the Freudian theories where you say, oh, every, every person has um, aggressiveness, thanatos, death, but, uh, given certain circumstances of childhood trauma. But if you don't see it, well, it's just latent. So I, either way, it's unfalsifiable. Either way, his theory must be correct. It's, it's unfalsifiable. This is some of the critique. Um, on the other hand, Pseudoscience, SPS with scientific pretensions, actually making scientific claims, then cannot be defined simply as non-science or anti-science in a Popperian sense, using Popper's definition, because it is falsifiable. Well, if it is falsifiable, then why do people still hold on to it? Well, because due to the, the very definition, right, it's unconscientiousness or unwillingness to recognize falsifying evidence. It's the paradigm won't shift just by a single piece of data. So this, this pseudoscience is kind of akin to bad science. Um, on the other hand, so all that says pseudoscience is similar to science. On the other hand, holding on to these claims, waiting for future evidence to support that pseudoscientific claim is akin to faith and hope. It's more on the faith side now. Pseudoscience does fall in the spectrum of, of religion and science as well. So depending on the person, you know, the agent, claiming the pseudoscience, whether intentional or unintentional, and in what activity or context, and this is also important, but in what activity or context, writing a science fiction, which is fine, or raising funds for a science project, a lot more serious will be culpable. This bad science could mean fraudulent science. And so that's where there's a slippery slope here, based on the intention of the person, and based on the context of that activity. So it's very difficult to assess right? when you hear something transhumanist like, we need to look at the person and also the activity, not just the content itself. 
So transhumanism and pseudoscience. Um, bearing in mind the features of pseudoscience, transhumanism can at times be considered to use pseudoscience. Right? So transhumanist projects sometimes make epistemically unconscientious claims. Uh, and sometimes make scientific pretensions depending on the motivations and the context. So in this sense, uh, transhumanism as pseudoscience concurs with our initial observations that transhumanism does lie on the spectrum um, of, of religion and science. So in, in summary, uh, transhumanism is a complex phenomenon which involves science and faith. You can understand it that way as being in this gradient between science and faith. There are various definitions of science and you look at the science end of the spectrum. And the best definitions are, of science are the ones that incorporate not only the content of science, but also the activity and the agents involved in the scientific communities. Uh, bad science is still science, but it is either erroneous or fraudulent, right, depending on the agent and the context. And pseudoscience is somewhat of a mix of science and non-science or science and faith. So depending on the context, science and transhumanism can be good, bad, or ugly, pseudoscience. So in all cases, we have to be mindful of our defining criteria. I think that's, this is the main message. There's so many working definitions here, different ideas uh, for the content, activity, and agents of both science and transhumanism. Okay, with that said, I'd like to again say thank you to the Holistic uh, Institute. I've always gone to all the events here back when I was in, uh, in Berkeley and now in Washington, D.C., near the American House of Studies. I look forward to being able to join you guys uh, at the Angelicum. Special thanks to Father Marius um, and my, my collaborators at the CTNS, uh, Berkeley, and at my home institution at Cambridge. Thank you.